The second pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Donovan McNabb, quarterback, Syracuse University. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Boo Birds podcast. I'm Joe Greenwich. And I'm John Sager. We're happy to be back for our second episode of the show. Kind of surprised the FCC didn't shut us down already. They probably don't even know we exist yet. We are chock full of Philly sports talk this week. But first, a reminder that if you want to get in touch with the show, you can find us on both Twitter and Facebook at Boo Birds Podcast. And we're happy to announce we just launched our website. That's right. You can find us on the web at bluebirdspodcast.com. We'll have links and rundowns for each of our episodes, as well as some other stories that may or may not make it to the podcast, so be sure to check it out. We're recording on Tuesday night this week, and we lost the site today with an absolute bombshell of a column from you right out of the gate, which we will absolutely talk a little bit more about in a bit. John, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, weird start to the week, though. I had a, a beehive outside my house. It woke up on uh, on Saturday morning, and I thought it was raining stuff, but it, it was raining on one side of the house. And then I realized that bees kept running into the window. Look out, random beehive out of nowhere, outside my window. Just something to keep you on edge throughout the week and all your windows closed. Well, this is 2020. Are you sure they weren't locusts and they were just regular old bees? Uh, possibility of murder hornets, unverified, but possibility. That would be the worst weather report you could possibly get. Cloudy with a chance of murder hornet. Well, who knows what else is coming in 2020. Forget about what's coming. Let's talk about what happened over the last week. What do you got for us? Well, General Manager Matt Klintak's recent trades have somewhat stabilized the Phillies' bullpen, allowing the team to pull within three games of Atlanta and the NL East. Klintak scored a big move on Monday by acquiring reliever David Phelps from Milwaukee for three players to be named later. The injury was keep coming for the Eagles. Just a few days after tackle Andre Dillard's season-ending injury, rookie wideout Jalen Rieger will miss three to four weeks with a shoulder tear. As we record this week's episode, the Flyers are battling for their playoff lives as they trail the Islanders three to one in the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Joe, I'm not sure that I still have completely adjusted to summer hockey, but I will say that I've enjoyed kind of getting back on the the Flyers uh, bandwagon after uh, after a while. It's been uh, refreshing to say the least, after such a long playoff drought. I mean, yeah, you're right. Summer hockey is weird. But if you look at some of the places that hockey is played nowadays in the NHL, like look who's leading series right now. Tampa Bay won its series. And then you've got Dallas and Vegas. Tampa, Dallas, Vegas, and either the Flyers or Islanders. You know, you might have only one market where ice actually exists in nature in the Final Four of the NHL. I think think expansion has gone a little too far in the NHL, if you ask me. Well, anything will happen in Vegas if you pay enough for it. There's your news for this week. But before we go any further, hey, Joe, what are you drinking? Tonight, it is an ice-cold glass of sparkling water. It's cherry. I won't mention the brand, but the glass is very bubbly. Hey, John. Yeah? What you drinking? Well, hard seltzer, tropical lime. That was What Are You Drinking? Brought to you this week by... All right, John, we're going to talk about the Flyers who are on the brink of elimination down 3-1 to the New York Islanders. You know, people are kind of talking about how the team hasn't looked good this series. 
were you all that impressed with them in the Montreal series? I, I think, I, I think for me, the whole concept of the round robin, you know, the, the NHL's version of the NBA seeding games that we had, it was a very flawed way to decide things. Boston was the best team in the league for the whole course of the season that we had had. And then they come into the bubble and they lose three games and they ended up with a couple of tougher playoff matchups. Now they're out. The Flyers, they, they were hot toward the end of that first part of the season. Then they stayed hot in the early days of bubble play up in Toronto. They were able to get the top seed and face Montreal when they knocked off Pittsburgh. But, I mean, this to me, it really isn't like a one seed playing a seven. This is the fourth best team in the East playing against the team who was seventh when the season was stopped. This should be a much more even series. And for the Flyers to be down 3-1 isn't the surprise to me that I think it seems to be for some people. I agree, but I don't know if there was any real better way to sort of restart the season. Uh, it's an unprecedented situation. I think the NHL came up with the the best idea that they they had, or at least they thought they had. Unfortunately, it might wind up biting the Flyers, but you know, playoff hockey has has always been exciting. There's usually some upsets. It's it's much more competitive than the NBA, where it's almost a foregone conclusion uh, to who advances. Uh, and the, the Flyers are in the thick of it right now. I've always been one of those people that put value in the regular season. So, like, why are you playing in a normal year, 80, 82 games, just to throw it all away here? So, for me, they very easily could have brought all the teams back. And sure, given the top four a buy into the next segment. But if you want to play some games, you can play a couple of round-robin games like they did. You can do two against each team, whatever you want, and just add those points to the season total if you want it to matter. You know, it shouldn't just be, well, the Flyers won three in a row. They're the number one seed. I think that just basically, it doesn't render the whole season they played to that point pointless, but it really dilutes it a great deal. So now we have the Flyers who are down 3-1 as a top seed. And it's like, are they the top seed? Really? Like this should not be seen as anything other than a relatively even kind of matchup comparatively. I mean, there can be a big difference between four and seven, but keep in mind the Islanders would have had something like what? 10 or 15 games left to try to move up further in the standings. Right. And when you're watching the play on the ice, it's more apparent that there are actually two very evenly matched teams, something that you would think would meet later on in the playoffs and not just in the second round. What did you think of the decision by well, both coaches, really, but specifically Elaine Vigneault to start Brian Elliott in goal in game four instead of Carter Hart? The youngster had been his guy through the first nine games of the playoffs. It seemed like, I don't know if I would have made the same decision, but Vigneault's had such a, a great read on his team throughout the year. He must be closer to it than I. Uh, maybe if Carter Hart's lost his confidence and he could see that, maybe he hit the proverbial rookie wall. Um, it's cert- certainly the bold move, but when you're down this far in the series, maybe you really have nothing to lose. And make no mistake, Brian Elliott is not why they lost that game at all. He he played just fine. I think, I mean, I wonder if part of it is also the back-to-back. Um, you know, you don't see that in the playoffs almost ever. And they, they were supposed to play a back-to-back when Thursday and Friday's games were postponed. So the NHL gave them the back-to-back in games three and four. They didn't have a great game three. So maybe, like you said, confidence was a little shaken. But to say he he's the guy and then take him out. Uh, Barry Trotz, the Islanders, made the same decision. You know, they played their backup who would come in after Semyon Varlamov had a terrible start to game two. 
I, I just thought it was interesting that both coaches made the same decision with their goaltender for the same game. But ultimately, I don't think either goalie was the difference in that game. Maybe a couple of breaks, or as they say in hockey, puck luck didn't go the Flyers' way. But ultimately, uh, they're in the second intermission right now in game five. And the Flyers are up two to one. But if you have nothing more to add on the Flyers, I'd like to get into what you wrote for our website launch today. I have nothing more to add uh, aside from the absolute treat that it's been to have the Flyers back and have them relevant. We we had the Phillies down for uh, a few years before Bryce Harper um, signed last year. Say almost the same thing with the Flyers, where they were just dead for most of a decade, and then they're back. It's just exciting and nice to have all you know all four teams at least in the mix. And no matter what the outcome of this series is, having the Flyers back and relevant is huge. And hopefully that translates to, to next year as you have a, a young team moving forward. It would have dovetailed nicely with the Flyers moving on in the playoffs as the Sixers imploded. But it seems like once the Sixers left their bubble, the Flyers stopped playing well in theirs. So I promise to go into this piece you wrote. Last week, we talked about the dumpster fire that is the Sixers organization. And I want to apologize to the Sixers for that characterization. They are not a dumpster fire because the fire is already completely burned out. They are just a burned out dumpster at this point. So my apologies. And also to dumpster fires. But you said something last week on the podcast, then you expounded on it today that you believe that the Sixers proposal to build an arena at Penn's Landing that they have absolutely no intention of moving to Penn's Landing and instead intend to move to North Jersey. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you wrote today? And, and you don't have to get super detailed because we do want people to read your story at boobirdspodcast.com, hashtag shameless plug. But uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, there's two possibilities with New Jersey, actually. The first and um, most logical would be moving to Camden where they have their training facility just across the river. But I believe this might be more of a ploy uh, for the, a greater move. Uh, the ownership group of uh, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, uh, they also own the New Jersey Devils. They have an arena up there which only has the hockey team and nothing else. It would be very convenient that if they don't get this Penn's Landing proposal, uh, that they just move up there to where they don't have to build an arena. It's already there. They also own the arena, so they wouldn't have to worry uh, about cutting another deal with uh, local governments. And then when you look at their lease of the practice facility in Camden, Camden County only gave them 10 years of tax breaks. So this would set up along with that 2031 timeline they were going for. And then also in the news, slightly, it looks like it's becoming slightly less possible scenario, but they were also in the running to buy the New York Mets. It looks like that might wind up go, going to uh, Steve Cohen right now, but they're currently the number two bid in, in that scenario. Now, having three teams in the sort of New York, the Metro New York market there, I think that would align very nicely to set up a regional sports network. Uh, now, you wouldn't be able to do that uh, with the Sixers and two New York teams, but three New York teams, you know, money talks at some point. Uh, I feel like if, if that was their end goal in trying to buy the Mets as well, then I feel like either way it works out poorly for Philadelphia because either Harrison Blitzer buy the Mets and then maybe consider it a possibility to bring all three teams together and move the Sixers, as you suggest. 
which I have to reiterate, I believe has an incredibly minuscule chance of happening. Or somebody else who might run the Mets properly will buy them, and that would be a bad thing for the Phillies. So maybe from that regard, you kind of root for Harrison Blitzer to replace the Wilpon family with the Mets, at least if you're a Phillies fan, but but then it might put them in the position to want to do something like this. So do you believe, when, when thinking about this and looking at all the stuff that you looked at, do you believe that they would rather play at Penn's Landing than at the Wells Fargo Center? Or did they just pick that place because it's an available spot and they're just playing the long game and getting out of town? I think that actually might depend on whether they actually, if they buy the Mets as well. If they do get the Mets, everything lines up for their move to where they have the the sweetener of the TV package. If they don't get the Mets, then they not only have uh, the new Wells Fargo Center, whatever it would be, uh, but they would also have uh, access to, or ownership of rather, um, apartment buildings and more of a development down there. I know there were two museums, including the Independent Seaport Museum, um, that were going to be reconstructed as well. So it's for the billionaire team, uh, it's a win-win. But it's just a matter of what side the Philadelphia taxpayers are on. And it looks like it might be a lose either way. Yeah. If it's win-win for the billionaires, then the only other option is lose-lose. And either you lose your team or you lose all of that the, the tax money, the local funding. And I think even as sports fans, we can admit that the municipal funding for sports arenas is still one of the biggest scams going. Right. It happened most recently here with the Union and Chester. Uh, they, they were promised that area is a is a way to just bring a, a boon to the to the region, and then it just hasn't really panned out long term. And then you know, of course, with the Union being a little bit lesser than the the Sixers in terms of um, bringing in an economic output, and you know, Penn's Landing is of course different, much higher stakes. And especially now with the coronavirus, where um, governments are just strapped for flexibility for sort of a glamour project like this, I, I just don't see it happening, which it's not the first time this ownership group is tone deaf. This is really tone deaf right now. Alluding to the announced pay cuts during the pandemic that they quickly had to walk back when everybody was like, really? Really, guys? But uh, you're right. Well. Uh, both that and then also interrupting a Little League game for a helicopter landing. But that is a whole <laughs> other podcast where we could talk about the tone deaf ownership. Actually, might have been last week's podcast. <laughs> Things that rich people do. That that could be our next podcast. Uh, if I had a helicopter. <laughs> well, make sure you go check out that piece. John, I know you put a lot of, of time and research into it. Uh, how many tinfoil hats? Was it just the one or... It's one, but it's crooked to the side a little bit. Who knows? In 10 years' time, our 500th episode might just be you dunking on everyone that you told us so as the New Jersey Sixers get ready to host the Celtics in the playoffs. Well, hopefully everyone will be able to go online and read the piece and then tell me how wrong I was in a couple of years. Yeah. Be sure to leave a comment under the story just booing this man for his negativity. But uh, be sure you go check that out on uh, BooBirdsPodcast.com. A heck of a way to start a website, John. I will give you that. Real quick, saw this story come across the uh, newswire on the screen during the Phillies game on Sunday night. Obviously, you talked the last couple of weeks about Andre Dillard suffering an injury. 
He's the left tackle, the heir apparent to Jason Peters after his contract ran out last year. Jason Peters then came back to play right guard this year. The story that came out, and I'll be honest, I haven't heard more on it other than maybe someone briefly alluding to it on the local newscast the next day. But the story being that even though logic would indicate that Jason Peters could just easily slide back to tackle and take over for Andre Dillard, who had taken over for Jason Peters, that he wants more money to move to tackle because left tackle is considered a more valuable position. I don't know what I think of that. Like on the one hand, I think, you know, oh, well, you sign a contract to do one thing. If they want you to do something different, then they should renegotiate the contract. But on the other hand, I think it's incredibly stupid. You know, like I don't believe there's a positional guarantee in a contract, but at the same time, really haven't heard this talked about. And the news has made a point over the last couple of days that Matt Pryor has been playing left tackle and Jason Peters has remained at guard. Is this news? Is this a thing? Is is there anything there, John? The only way I can think that it might be something there or there to it is um, I'm wondering if with his age coming back, if this is, might be Jason Peters realizing that coming back was a mistake and that he just is being a little reluctant, especially maybe to move back to left tackle. Maybe he figured he can get one or two more years out of out of playing guard. But to do a whole season of tackles is a completely different ask. I'm wondering if he's starting to to get regrets. Maybe he thought he could spell Diller every now and then. But, you know, maybe he's just realizing it's and it's not just always showing up on game day. It's the preparation to go into the season. It's the recovery during the week. Maybe he just wasn't there for it. And this is his way of asking out. I agree with you. It's sort of a multifaceted issue at Everybody can understand the concept of being asked to do more at work and wanting to be paid more money. But his job is to be the bodyguard and to stop people from hitting Carson Wentz. I don't think that the, that fundamentally changes just switching positions. Obviously, tackles more difficult to play, but the job is to still protect the quarterback. I mean, the one thing he's most known for right after being one of the best tackles in the league for a long time is how often he gets hurt. I would think that he would be more at risk playing tackle to suffer an injury, trying to defend against these edge rushers who have like wide receiver speed. So if there's a situation where, you know, if you're correct and he's just trying to kind of prevent having to deal with that in what may be his final season in the NFL, like that makes some sense. But I just, I just, I really don't know if it's actually a story and it got reported. And, and that's kind of a big deal. If a guy who was with a team for a long time, and everyone considers a Hall of Fame caliber player, switches positions and then is trying to basically hold his team up for ransom to help them out when a guy goes down with, with an injury. Like It almost feels like somebody who would leak that would be trying to smear him in the public, in the, in the court of public opinion, which is not something you'd want to do if you're part of the team. So I, I really don't know where that story came from. I don't know if there's any merit to it, but I just... I, I can't imagine that a guy who has given so much of himself to the sport and, and the team would actually take that position. I think there might be something to it. And just going back to last week, now the entire fan base thought, okay, Dillard goes down, Peters goes over. No one would have thought twice about it. But Doug Peterson didn't really go into that and he sort of couched it. So I'm wondering if maybe there were contract negotiations that he's privy to that 
that we were in the beginning. Honestly, I think if Peters feels this way, that he is, it's all basically on him and his agent that they should have put some kind of clause in the contract that if you play X games of tackle versus guard, that there's a, you know, he gets paid at a different rate or maybe some kind of bonus at the end of the season. But I'm wondering if that's why. I think otherwise it would have just been more of a natural split decision or it would have just been explained differently as we're going to do prior or something like that. But by hemming and hawing, it's, it, sometimes it's not what people say, it's what they don't say, especially NFL coaches that are very guarded. Um, Doug's usually very careful not to, he's very, unlike Chip Kelly, he's very conscious of people's feelings and personalities. So, you know, that might be that as well. But I, I'm wondering by what he's not saying, if there's something that um, that's speaking sort of volumes there in, in the distance. John, that's the second week in a row you've taken a shot at Chip Kelly as well. Well, that might be the theme of the the podcast. I can never remember a person being the target of more vitriol and invective after they left town. Well, I guess maybe Rich Kotite, but that was more for that 7-2 turning into a 7-9 season. And two of his three seasons were winning seasons. Right. And the absolute loathing of Chip Kelly in this town is, I mean, I don't, I don't get it. It just... I mean, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. The guy that came in after him won the Super Bowl. Get over it, Philadelphia. Are you telling us to stop having a grudge? Have you not lived here your whole life? No, I, I'm not saying that holding a grudge in principle in sports is bad. I just think this isn't it. Yeah, it's Chip Kelly, though. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Phillies trade deadline acquisition, what they did, what they didn't do, and if we think it matters at all. You are listening to the Boo Birds Podcast. Stick around. Here on the Boo Birds podcast, John, the Major League Baseball trade deadline pushed back a month due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Similar kind of flurry late that we usually see a lot of pitching getting traded at the deadline. And in a weird season in that really there's probably only like three or four teams who are out of it. Everybody's still kind of thinking, you know, we're only a few games back of that eighth spot in the National League or whatever. One of the things we always see at the deadline is... There's a lot of relief pitchers going back and forth, and the local team did that. But I guess it goes without saying, anybody who follows baseball, the the biggest trade deadline buyer was the San Diego Padres. Uh, they're going for it. They traded for starter Mike Clevenger from Cleveland, sent a six-player haul, I believe it was, to Cleveland for Clevenger and an outfielder. And Clevenger's been one of the better pitchers in the American League the last few years. You think, oh, well, that's, you know, a pretty typical salary dump. Let's get some prospects when we're not contending. But Cleveland was right there with everybody else, still in contention. They just they just have this glut of starting pitching between Shane Bieber and Aaron Savale and Tristan McKenzie just came up, had a great debut. They also have Mike Clevenger and Zach Plesak. But those guys got in trouble with their teammates for breaking the coronavirus protocols. They were sent to the minors. Clevenger now traded to San Diego. 
you have to believe that it's in part because of that. You know, they were going to have to make a decision on uh, which of these pitchers they could try to sign long term. And they traded Corey Kluber in the offseason. They traded Trevor Bauer last season. Just, you know, so much good pitching in Cleveland that they know they can't keep it all. And so they elected to trade Clevenger. Again, I believe in large part because of the complete loss of trust from his teammates. And he'll now be in San Diego. And that's the kind of guy who can front a playoff rotation, go out and win you a ball game. Of course, you've got Fernando Tatis Jr., unless we forget Manny Machado. So that's a legit team. And the Los Angeles Dodgers have been you know, running the show out in the NL West for a long time. But I don't know that the Padres are, are quite on that level yet. But in a year where the top two teams in each division are going to make it to the playoffs, and then two teams beyond that in each league, the Padres are saying, you know, we are ready to go. Our, our window is open now. What do you think of their moves? I, I love the aggressiveness of it, especially getting Clevenger, who uh, I believe is under control uh, for an additional year. Um, for Cleveland, I believe, I don't know if the recent issues played into it too much because their window is about to end or their sort of window is the, the favorites in the division or co-favorites with the Twins. Um, I think they're looking to almost put, do an Oakland Athletics style move where they sort of trade away a super positive for a couple of uh, a couple of pluses that can help them more in the future than now. If they, especially if they have a strength, um, they're probably going to start their rebuild next year. Uh, maybe even this offseason with uh, Francisco Lindor hitting free agency. Uh, so I think Clevenger was just sort of the start of that. It allows them to hang around this year. I think everybody just wants to hang around and get into the dance. And then what happens, happens. Um, but, I, you know, I love what they did. Uh, one thing that stood out this year is that the Miami Marlins are actually trying. We're so used to them just selling off, whether it's just these massive pieces like Yelich, Ozuna, Real Muto, you know, even to within contenders. Uh, within the division, uh, and you know, Stanton going to New York was probably the, the biggest trade. Um, they they made moves to, to stay in it. Uh, they're a team that actually might not make a difference if there's fans in the ballpark this year or not. We're so used to <laughs> uh, them playing in front of uh, whatever Phillies fans happen to make the trip, um, and then a mariachi band wandering in the outfield. Um, but they're going for it. I think that's the type of year this is to, to where everybody thinks they have a shot. Why not go for it? If, if you're not out, you know, like the Red Sox, then just, just go for it. Um, and it would actually be a very 2020 thing for the Marlins to, to go far in this. They, they've won two World Series titles, but no division titles. It's something that, we could get this the phobia we can get into uh in another podcast is I, I can't stand the Marlins. They're probably my least favorite franchise in all of sports. And it's be, primarily because they've been mediocre or bad for their entire existence, with two brief exceptions, and yet they have as many World Series titles as the Phillies, who have also been mediocre or bad, but played out for a much longer time and have the you know, two titles apiece. I, you know, I, I just, it's just, they've, they've, they've always bothered me. And 
seeing them in the thick of it this year, it's just it's strength. It's just sort of that little thing going like, oh, is this is this what's going to spoil the, the Phillies this year? Well, that's right. Believe it or not, here in September 2020, the Phillies are competing with the Marlins for that automatic second place playoff position. But the Phillies trying to do everything they can to get up into first place. Obviously, the sore spot with this team has been the bullpen. So they went out and acquired all of the relievers that you've ever heard of, even one that maybe you haven't. Uh, they acquired David Hale from the Yankees, who just made his debut on Sunday, brought a can of kerosene out with him to the mound, <laughs> taking the fire that Jake Arrieta lit, making it just a little bit worse. And they also acquired Brandon Workman, who has done exactly that. I think he's pitched in just about every game since he got here. They brought in Heath Hembry with Workman, both from Boston. And then, as you mentioned earlier, David Phelps coming in from Milwaukee for three 19-year-olds. Are you satisfied? Now, obviously, we won't know if it worked out for another month. Are you satisfied with what the Phillies did? They took what appeared to be their biggest need. They basically reworked that entire bullpen. What do you think of the approach that Matt Klintak took? Would you like to see him do something else? Because I think maybe I would have. The move that he needed to make that he fell short of was getting that extra starter, especially with all these double headers coming mm-hmm. up. That's it right there. I, th- I think I think that's that's the the move that stands out. The lineup is fine. I'm not worried about the lineup. I think they're they're deep enough that they can withstand uh, you know normal uh, normal number of injuries or IL stints. Well, we're seeing it right now with how Bryce Harper and JT Real Muto carried the team for the first few weeks of the season. The numbers were just sky high, but they've been struggling the last week or so. But it's been Reese Hoskins, Andrew McCutcheon picking things up. Gene Segura with a bases-clearing double to give them some breathing room against the Nationals earlier this week. Now, I, I agree entirely with you about the offense and the fact that what maybe they really needed was another you know, proven, I can get you six innings every time I go out to the mound kind of starter to help alleviate the stress on the bullpen. Question is, who was out there that they could have gotten in exchange for whatever you'd be comfortable giving up as a Phillies fan? Given that the top of the rotation is fairly set, um, certainly they I wouldn't think they would need to make a move for a potential playoff series because you're set with Nolo, Wheeler, and I would say Eflin or Howard. Not even Ariadne at this point is too unreliable. Um despite his past postseason efforts. Um, they probably needed to get somebody like Robbie Ray, someone in in that vein where maybe he could do a couple of long innings in the, the bullpen, sort of like Velasquez has been doing recently, just to just to stay stretched out. And then you can slot him in for four, five innings, whatever whatever you can get out of him, just to take a a little bit um, away from the bullpen if they were to do a bullpen game. Right now, Cole Irvin's the other option. And I believe he's that quintessential 4A player to where he'll go down to AAA. He'll be very good when things are breaking right for him. He looks great. When he gets to the big leagues and things aren't quite working, pitchers need to work around that. And I don't know if he he can work around it if he's not perfect. Um, maybe he starts a bullpen game, but I, I think they just needed that, that extra piece. As far as the, the piece they did get in David Phelps, you needed sort of a big reliever. He might be the closer. I'm not sure how that situation is going to play out. It might be more of a hot hands thing working forward. Um, Naris might slide back in if his bullpen work is 
you know, allowed him to, to settle down. Um, but, you know, Phelps might be the guy. I, I don't, I'm not confident in Workman going forward. He's doing his best Mitch Williams impression out there. And I don't think that makes <laughs> anyone confident. I, I think part of the added benefit of the Phelps acquisition is Joe Girardi's familiarity with him. Uh, he will know how to get the best out of him. He will know the best role for him. So in that regard, it's certainly a good, you know, a good pickup. I, I think from the standpoint of addressing the most glaring need, sure. But I wonder if it really was the biggest need. Like, look, the numbers were ugly. And what we saw with our eyes was ugly. But with this sort of season, everything is just so skewed. You know, we're looking at it like, oh, man, a third of the season got away from them. But it was also only 20 games. And Joe Girardi mentioned, and you know, neither of us are big Tommy Hunter fans, but as he's gone on, as Girardi said it would, his velocity has gotten better. And when his velocity gets better, he gets better. And these guys had a really different sort of year between spring training and a long break and then summer camp and trying to get ramped back up. And I, I think as, as you have ebbs and flows through seasons, so too will your bullpen as a whole and players as individuals. And I wonder if, you know, yeah, they brought in Brandon Workman and Heath Hembry and David Hale and now David Phelps. But I wonder if maybe, you know, Nick Pavetta and Connor Siebold could have you know, instead gotten you one of those kind of starting pitchers that you talked about. And then you figure out the bullpen. You know, Jojo Romero has come up and pitched well. Uh, you know, I, I think it was just one of those things where I'm not unhappy that they went out and got bullpen help. I just wonder if they needed to go out and get four new pitchers when maybe two and a better starter could have been more productive. Because like you said, you've got Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, who has been the best free agent pitcher signing of the offseason so far. Jake Arrieta, when he's pitching well, he's rolling over double play after double play, and it's great. But then you see what he did the other night. He had the shortest outing of his career. He essentially just threw another bullpen or through batting practice, really, is how it turned out in that second inning. But he can have a really good game. In his previous start before that, he threw something like 50-some pitches through five innings before the rain came in. You know, I, I think you know what you're getting from Jake Arrieta on a given night pretty quickly. And we saw he gave up a home run in Washington, and then he was really, really good until the rain delay. The other night, he kind of labored through that first inning, and Ronald Acuna got on, and then he threw to first over and over and over again. And he just, he, he, he looked uncomfortable on the mound. And then the next inning, everything caved in. And as for Zach Eflin, I'm going to take this opportunity to let everyone know that you and I had many a debate between Zach Eflin and Nick Pavetta. You sided with Nick Pavetta. I took Zach Eflin. I think I've officially won the debate. Will you concede defeat on that one right here on the Boo Birds podcast? What? Interesting. Interesting. Convenient how your headphones went out at just the right moment there. Anyway, I, ideally, the Phillies would have picked up another starting pitcher, but I'm definitely okay with the bullpen acquisitions. And as you said, the offense is it, one of the top offenses in baseball, and they've certainly been hitting well this last week or so. But speaking of midseason trades, before we sat down to record, we were trying to think of some of the best and worst midseason trades that the Phillies have made, either at the deadline or leading up to the deadline. I think the one really good trade that we came up with was in 2009 when they acquired Cliff Lee and Ben Francisco from Cleveland. And there goes Cleveland again, trading away Cy Young caliber pitchers. It was Cliff Lee in 2009, one year after doing the same with CeCe Sabathia. 
And here we are talking about it again in 2020, doing that same type of deal. But the Phillies traded away four players, with the biggest name being Carlos Carrasco. He's had a very good major league career, and everyone knows what he overcame with being diagnosed with leukemia and then coming back to pitch. You know, it's a wonderful story, and he's been a very good pitcher for Cleveland since he's been there. But Cliff Lee is Cliff Lee, and Cliff Lee helped pitch the Phillies to a World Series. So in retrospect, do you do that deal again? In a heartbeat. And, and you can say that that worked out for both teams. Obviously, the Indians wanted more prospects to turn into big league players. But if you get a, a pitcher that goes another decade for you, that's a win. I think most GMs would take that. Um, for the Phillies, obviously, we know that you know Cliff Lee is one of the, even though he wasn't his second contract or second stint with the, the team didn't quite pan out as, as well as we'd hoped. Um, that, you know, he, he was crucial for them in a, you know, in a, in a world series year, you, you can't replace that. So if both teams win a, win a trade as a, you know, as a fan, you know, sometimes we'll nitpick and go, oh, I can't believe we gave that guy up. You know, maybe we could have given up, uh, you know, someone else like Kyle Drabeck who didn't really pan out, but uh, you know, you have to to give up a piece to get something. You know, the, the the fantasy trade where you, you know, give up Mike Trout or where you get Mike Trout for three guys that get you know hurt the next week is is just is unrealistic, especially in the in the actual baseball world. Well, we talked about that as probably the best in season trade that came to mind, but you had some nominees for the worst in season trade made by the Phillies. You want to talk about those? Sure. Uh, and when I went back through this list, I actually found out that the, the biggest trades, this might actually be more common for other franchises as well, but the biggest trades in Philly's history tended to happen in the offseason. There were there were only three uh, deadline trades or in-season trades, at least. The, the first one that stood out uh, was all the way back in uh, 1966. The Phillies gave up John Herstein, Adolfo Phillips, and relief pitcher Ferguson Jenkins Ooh. for starters, Larry Jenkins and Bob Ewell. Now, the idea at the time was to add a couple of veteran arms to give depth behind Budding and Short. Didn't quite work out for the Phillies. Ferguson Jenkins is in the Hall of Fame. Right. And this, this whole exercise, you know, it's all looking back, hindsight being what it is. It still stings to know that a guy you gave up went on to be one of the all-time greats. Right. And one of those debates actually might be happening right now as uh, Sixto Sanchez has uh, been called up to the Marlins. Looks good. If the Phillies can't hold on to JT. Uh, that that might just look bad in, in hindsight. The next two trades are more recent than that. Uh, and they have a, a similar theme. Uh, the first one is in 2000. Uh, the Phillies gave up Kurt Schilling for a package of Travis Lee, Nelson Figueroa, Omar Dahl and Vicente Padilla. The immortal Vicente Padilla. The Padilla Flotilla. Uh, I think what makes this trade sting is the Phillies had a long time to know that Kirchling wasn't going to come back here. And they would hover around 500 uh, in the next couple of seasons, I believe. Um, this is, again, going back to the vet pre-Jim Tommy. Um, so they had the star pitcher. If you're dealing with somebody like that, you have to know if you're going to keep him or not. 
And um, I think they might have been put in a box uh, by the, the list of teams who was willing to go to. But you have to get better than than what they had in return. Padilla is probably the only one of consequence. Dahl was better before he came to the Phillies than afterwards. And then another trade, just like the Schilling trade, was in 2002. Those had a slightly better return for this uh, in terms of impact players, but nothing long-term. This is dealing Scott Rowland, who made it known that he didn't want to to stay here. Um, You know, he's going, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. They gave up a Hall of Fame third baseman, one of the best defensive third baseman of all time for Placido Polanco, Bud Smith, and Mike Timlin. Timlin, solid relief pitcher. Smith didn't make much of an impact for the franchise. Polanco was the best of the lot. He was actually a fairly good player. Uh, He's actually a gold glove second baseman. He has records for total chances and uh, airless games at second. The Phillies, I believe, predominantly played him at third. Uh, He was fine as a a third baseman, Um, probably not. The, the cornerstone of a trade package uh, like you want. Uh, he was a good piece. If he had um, been in his prime here um, for winning teams uh, in his first stint with the Phillies, he probably would have been looked on more fondly. Uh, he was a, sort of the, he's the, the kind of complimentary player you want, but when you trade a Hall of Famer, you want more than one complimentary player in return. I think trading Scott Rowland is different than trading away Ferguson Jenkins if Rowland does make the Hall of Fame, because surely in 1966, you didn't know how good Ferguson Jenkins was going to be. Right. He wasn't even a starter then. Yes. Right. But Scott Rowland was one of the top third basemen in all of baseball when he was traded. Placido Polanco, I think, is mostly remembered for a second stint here when the Phillies were good. I don't think a lot of people realize that he had been traded here about eight years earlier let alone for Scott Rowland. But a lot of folks remember him for his time with the you know, the good Phillies, the early 2010s. But we're going to put a poll up on our website and social media, and we want you to vote on what you think was the worst Phillies in-season trade. I have a feeling that I know which way the vote will go, but I don't want to tip the scales on that, so I'll keep it to myself. Those are three deals that did not go the Phillies way, and I'm, I'm sure there are some we're leaving out, but be sure you let us know which ones we may have missed. The Flyers just blew a two-goal lead in the third period of Game 5. It's 3-3. They're heading to overtime. I think that's a sign that we should probably sign off from this week's edition of the Boo Birds podcast. Well, they probably should have dealt for relief pitching. <laughs> they needed a closer to come on and finish the game off. You can now find the Boo Birds podcast on Apple Podcasts. We're also available on Spotify, Radio Public, and Pocket Casts. And we're working on being added to other platforms as well. So be sure to subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review so we can help get the word out about the show. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can find us at Boo Birds Podcast on both of those. And of course, our newly launched website, BooBirdsPodcast.com, will have all of our new episodes and written stories. John, you working on any new conspiracy theories? No conspiracy theories, but there will be a piece appearing about the Phillies offense later this week. We'll tweet that out. But uh, you know, feel free to check out the website. Uh, very excited about how it looked. Uh, props to you. You put a lot of work into it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. All of our content 
will be there moving forward at bluebirdspodcast.com. Anybody who may be interested in taking out any ad space, hit us up. Or if you want to email the show, fill out the form on the contact page of the site. You can also subscribe for updates and get an email whenever we add a new post. That'll do it for this one. Johnny, I'll talk to you next week. All right, see you next week.